Hello, and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia. In this episode of Asia Unscripted, we hear from David Dollar, Senior Fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution and host of the Brookings Trade Podcast, Dollar and Cents. David is a leading expert on China's economy and U.S.-China economic relations. From 2009 to 2013, he was the U.S. Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China, based in Beijing, facilitating the macroeconomic and financial policy dialogue between the United States and China. Prior to joining the Treasury, David worked 20 years for the World Bank, serving as country director for China and Mongolia based in Beijing in his last five years. In the following clips, David discusses the Chinese economy and the ongoing U.S.-China trade conflict. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. This episode begins with David briefly explaining his area of research. So I'm an economist. Before I became an economist, I studied Chinese history and Chinese language in college a long time ago. And then I became an economist, spent most of my career in the World Bank, working on Asian countries. And last assignment was heading up the World Bank program in China. So I ended up living in Beijing for nine years. And then I came to Brookings. And I would say the focus of my research is really what I call China in the world. So it's China's relations with the U.S. That's a hot topic right now. But also the Belt and Road Initiative, China's investment in the developing world, China's role in international economic institutions. So all these aspects of China's emergence into the world on the economic side, that's really the focus of my research. Jumping right into today's topic, There seems to be a lot of competing figures and data and a lot of talk about how well the Chinese economy is doing and or how poorly it is doing. China has also come out and claimed that the trade conflict is harming the U.S. economy more than China's and both sides have different narratives. And so in your opinion, what is the current situation of China's economy, both domestically and its influence abroad? Well, first, I would say that their official data tends to overstate the real growth situation a little bit, Mm -hmm. but not too much, certainly less than one percentage point. And it's been consistent. This error has been consistent for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think their data tells us what the trend is. And as the trade war has progressed, their GDP growth has slowed down by about half a percentage point. And I think that's both a big number and a small number relative to their official growth of 6.2. Right now, you know, half a percentage point is not that big a deal. On the other hand, you know, you start taking half a percentage point here, half a percentage point there, and, and, and that does have effect on people's living standards. I don't agree with the argument that the U.S. has hurt more than China. I think the trade war hurts both economies. If China slowed down by about half a percentage point, U.S. economy is probably slowed down by less than a quarter of a percentage point as a result of the trade war. So I think the direct effects on the two economies so far are not too great, uh, but there's a lot of risk for this to escalate further. So in regard to the slowing down of China's economic growth, what are the reasons behind this trend? Well, good question. So if we go back a few more years, there's been really pretty significant slowdown. It wasn't that long ago China's economy was growing at about 10%, and now it's slowed down to more like 6%. That's pretty big. That's not mostly because of this trade war. That predates the trade war. It's natural for an economy that reaches middle income for its growth to slow down. We economists talk about convergence, so that countries that are far behind 
have some advantage in catching up to more advanced technologies, but as you catch up, that advantage tends to go away. So part of this is just a natural phenomenon. And then I also think China benefited for a long time from export-oriented growth, but it's so successful that it now is the biggest exporter in the world. Hard to keep up your export growth once you're the biggest player in the market. So they're growing more based on consumption now, which is good for Chinese people and uh, more sustainable. But these are service sectors that are less open and competitive in China than their manufacturing sector. So I think there's kind of a natural tendency for the economy to slow down as it becomes more diverse. And since it's a natural trend, do we anticipate this natural trend to continue or to change course?、Uh, so as China continues to develop, it would be natural for the growth rate to slow down. You know, among advanced economies, everybody's struggling to grow as much as two percent, for example. A lot of advanced economies only grow at one、uh, in real terms, and so for China to be growing at six is still very good, even if it's slightly exaggerated.、Uh, but as they as they mature, it's likely the growth rate will continue to slow down. Aside from the convergence phenomena that I mentioned, most advanced economies have a problem with demographics. Fertility rate declines, the old people in the society increase, the labor force tends to shrink, and this is going to be especially acute in China because of the one-child policy in the past. So they're going to have to struggle against their demographics in order to continue to grow well. So you mentioned previously that. This trade conflict has really harmed both countries,、um, but Isabel and I were wondering if there were actually any industries that benefited from this trade war. It's hard to find anybody or any industry that's benefiting. In the kind of textbook models of trade, you know, you tend to think of countries specializing in different industries. But what's happened in the modern world is trade has been overtaken by what we call global value chains. Most trade is in parts and components.、Uh, so you take a look at a particular industry like autos, for example. Seems like the U.S. imports a lot of autos, but a lot of that actually are parts and components that are used by the auto industry here. So one of the protections the U.S. has put in place against China concerns auto parts,、right? but in fact that makes those important components more expensive. It hurts U.S. manufacturers. So protecting the auto industry sounds like a good idea, but it actually ends up hurting auto firms and auto workers. So I think in a world of complex value chains. It's really hard to find anybody who's benefiting from this trade war. So, what are the industries that have been most negatively affected? Then, well, on the Chinese side,、uh, you know, China exports a lot, a lot of labor-intensive products. Still,、uh, the U.S. initial round of tariffs did not go after the very popular consumer items like smartphones, laptops, footwear. The latest round that's now about to go into effect in the fall of 2019 that is going to start hitting those popular consumer items. But up till now, most of the U.S. protection has been on parts and components, not consumer items. So I think autos has been hurt. And then turning it around, looking at it from the point of view of China's retaliation, a lot of that has been aimed at the agricultural sector. So farmers are definitely taking a big hit. Price of soybeans is about down about twenty five percent since the trade war started. That means the whole soybean crop is worth twenty five percent less. So that's a big hit for U.S. farmers. So trade talks between the U.S. and China recently resumed in Shanghai. What was the outcome of these discussions? Well, it seemed it seemed a little strange to be perfectly honest. So right before that, President Xi and President Trump they met on the sideline of the G20 meeting in Japan.、It、seemed like they'd reached a broad agreement. 
at least the beginning of an agreement where the U.S. would ease up on restrictions on Huawei, China would resume buying agricultural products. So I thought at those Shanghai negotiations they would formalize that loose agreement, but that didn't happen. The Shanghai meetings turned out to be very brief. Didn't really agree to anything. The U.S. side came back. They briefed President Trump and said that China was not firmly committed to buying more agricultural products. And then President Trump came in with another round of tariffs that are that are supposed to go into effect on September first. So Shanghai discussions certainly didn't resolve anything. And how about the trade talks that are expected to resume in September? What are the anticipated outcome of that? Well, now that the U.S. is threatening a new round of tariffs on September first, and then、uh, it was hard for China to retaliate specifically against that because China imports so much less from the U.S. than it exports. China is already covering most of its imports from the U.S. with a 25% tariff, so they didn't really have a lot of option with the tariff response. But what they've done is they've let their currency depreciate past seven to one, which was kind of a line in the sand, frankly,、uh, and that definitely has upset global markets, pushed the United States to name China a currency manipulator. So certainly things seem to be going in a bad direction, and therefore. If they get back together and talk in September,、uh, at the moment it seems like there's a pretty poor environment for further negotiation. So once the new round of tariffs go go into effect in September, and until re- agreements are reached between the U.S. and China, how how do you think the trade disputes will affect the economies and the consumers in both countries? Well, when the Chinese currency depreciated past seven, there was a global stock market sell-off that was pretty serious. Oftentimes, after a sell-off like that, things calm down and the markets tend to bounce back a little. So I don't think it's the end of the world.、Uh, but, but that market reaction is a sign that this escalating U.S.-China trade tension is bad for economic activity. I mean, to make it real, what this does is it just creates a lot of uncertainty. You know, an important part of the economy is business investment. You know, in a healthy economy, businesses are investing, expanding. And、now a lot of businesses are looking at the situation. If they're involved in traded goods like manufactured products, they're looking at the situation and they don't know. Does it make sense to get parts from China? Or are you going to face a 25% tariff forever? Should you build a factory in Vietnam? That's expensive proposition. Farmers are looking at the situation, thinking, what should we plant for the next season? If we can't sell to China, then Probably doesn't make sense to plant a lot of soybeans, for example, because there's not going to be a market. And that uncertainty, you know, that's really bad for the economy. How are the other countries, especially those within Southeast Asia, affected by this trade war? They're basically opposing effects coming from this in the following sense: If you're Vietnam, there is some benefit from this U.S.-China trade war because a lot of stuff, particularly labor-intensive products, that That are coming from China, they now face a twenty-five percent tax. That's pretty serious. So firms are starting to look around, thinking if this is going to be permanent, then maybe we will build that factory in Vietnam. That's what we call trade diversion. So there's definitely already a certain amount of trade diversion.、Uh, countries like Viet- Vietnam is a good example, but let's not just dwell on that. There's also Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand. These are all pretty significant economies that are part of global value chains. So they may get some trade diversion. But I argue there's a second effect. For all of those countries, China is a really big trading partner, and most and those economies all export a lot of things to China, both commodities but also manufacturing components. 
Chinese economy is slowing down, as we already discussed, and the trade war is not helping. And so that's going to have a negative effect on those Southeast Asian countries. So it's kind of hard to predict the net, but I would not be optimistic about the net effect because I think the slowdown in China is going to be the main thing and the trade diversion is going to be rather minor. And do you expect this trend to continue? Well, one has to remain hopeful that the trade war gets resolved. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of confusion on the U.S. side. Uh, is, is the trade war about trying to get China to open up uh, and do a better job of protecting intellectual property rights, these kind of issues. If, if that happens, there'll be more trade between the U.S. and China. But there's certainly voices in the United States who would like to isolate the U.S. economy from China. And if that's your objective, then you don't want to negotiate the truce. What you want to do is keep piling on the protection. So I do think on the U.S. side, it's a little bit confused. Do we want to just pile on the protection and separate from China? Which personally, I think is very unrealistic. Or are we actually trying to negotiate an agreement? In which case, we're going to have to be practical and we're going to have to compromise. These are the two biggest economies in the world. Neither one is going to roll over and play dead. So if we want to deal with China, we're going to have to meet them in the middle. So you mentioned earlier, um, there's also a dispute about intellectual property. So could you elaborate more on the Huawei conflict and if you have any thoughts on where that might go and how might that affect U.S.-China relations? Right. So complicating U.S.-China trade relations are the fact that they have very different political systems. I wouldn't call us enemies, but there's a certain amount of tension between the U.S. and China. I think for each country, the other one is the only real potential enemy out there of scale. You know, and I emphasize potential because I don't think we're enemies. Uh, but it's reasonable for China to look at the United States and worry, is the United States going to let China really take its place in the world as a co-equal economy? Uh, and it's reasonable for the United States to look at China with a very different political system and wonder, can we really coexist with this authoritarian country? So that complicates the trade issues. In the case of Huawei, that's a private firm with close ties to the Chinese military. It's reasonable for the United States to worry that if it sells certain technologies to Huawei, that that's going to be building up China's military capabilities. So I think the challenge for the U.S. is to define what should be a pretty small number of technologies that we're not going to sell to China. We're not going to let them come into our market and buy firms in those areas. But I think the true the true number of sectors that have military application is rather small, and we've gotten a little bit hysterical in the United States. A lot of Huawei's business is just very basic. They make smartphones that are very popular throughout the developing world. They rely on a number of key U.S. suppliers to, to provide what I think of as medium technology inputs, and we went overboard and we prevented our firms from selling these medium technology inputs to Huawei. That's basically trying to kill Huawei. That's a pretty unfriendly thing to do. It's really the most successful Chinese company as far as I can see. So that's part of the negotiation now is, can the US ease up on the sanctions in a way that protects our national security, but sells reasonable things to Huawei that allows it to do its basic telecom business. And how has this Huawei conflict affected 5G technology across the globe? Well, Huawei is racing to try to develop 5G technology. Uh, there's some international firms that are competitive with Huawei, European firms. Uh, there really don't seem to be any U U.S. firms. I'm not an expert in this, but from what I read, 
the U.S. military is monopolizing parts of the spectrum that are needed for 5G. So, so in the U.S., the issue may be more not which companies will be allowed to develop this. It may be more that you know, are we going to get a compromise that opens up the spectrum. Otherwise, you know, we're going to be left out of the whole 5G revolution, whether it's Ericsson or Huawei, we're just going to be left out. Could you talk about China's e-payment system, what exactly it is, and how has it developed? So uh, I lived in Beijing for nine years, starting in 2004. And when I first started living there, it struck me that the whole financial system was rather primitive. Credit cards didn't really exist. There were debit cards. Uh, but you know, a lot of problems. I remember buying a new car uh, probably about 2008, 2009, and I had to take a suitcase full of cash across Beijing in a taxi in order to pay for my new car and uh, drive it back home. And so what's amazing is within a short time, China has leapfrogged over credit cards and it's developed this electronic payment system based on QR codes. Two big private companies that have developed this, there's Alipay and then there's WeChat Pay. People use one or both of these, uh, and when they go in and they purchase things, they just pull out their cell phone, and you either take a picture of the QR code of the, uh, you know, of the establishment if you're in a restaurant, for example, or they take a picture of your QR code, uh, and then you just quickly transact the money electronically. So this is quite remarkable. Even beggars in Beijing, they're often sitting there with their printed piece of paper with their QR code. So if you're feeling generous, you just take your phone, you know, and you just give maybe a hundred Chinese yuan, which is about $15, maybe you give less than that. And then they can, then they take their piece of paper and they go into any establishment uh, and they can buy things. And then the establishment just takes a picture of their QR code and subtracts the money. So it's a pretty remarkably convenient system. So what are its implications for the financial system and security reasons? The security seems to be good. I find that interesting. Uh, there must be some fraud inevitably in this kind of system, but I think because you, you've got these two big private companies, pretty sure they're just eating any losses. You know? So if there's a little bit of fraud activity, WeChat Pay and Alipay, they're just covering that basically. So they want consumers to be confident that they can use this system and not have to worry about fraud. And do you see China's e-payment system being a model for the rest of the world? I think it has interesting implications in the developing world, and we're already starting to see you know, some, some copycat in, in India and places like that. You, you might think the Chinese system would just sort of emerge and take over the world. That's not going to happen because of, there is this basic problem that all countries have their own currencies. Right? So it's very hard. So as you take, if you're hooked into the Chinese system and you travel abroad, there's some establishments where you can use your account from China, uh, but in general, what's developing in India, for example, is tied to the Indian financial system and the Indian currency. Uh, and so you don't see so much the Chinese system just taking over. You see those Chinese firms sometimes having joint ventures with, say, an Indian firm or African firms. That's an interesting positive development. Probably not going to see it here in the U.S. because Americans, the, the high end of the market, people love their credit cards where they get 3% back and points and things like that. So it's, it's an interesting lesson. We've got this well-entrenched credit card system in the U.S. that works for most of us. So it's hard for something new to start. 
China, for a variety of reasons, didn't have credit cards, and so they were able to leapfrog right to this new technology. All right. Well, we like to end every episode with a fun and personal question. And so, what would be your favorite Chinese dish? So I like the dishes that often show up on Chinese menus as snacks, you know, uh, but really more noodles and dumplings. So I particularly like dan dan mian, which is spicy noodles from Sichuan. That's why I'm always going all over the world looking for dan dan mian. And I also love the dumplings from Shanghai, Xiaolongbao. These are dumplings that have a little bit of soup inside. In fact, if you don't know what you're doing, you get it all over your shirt or you can burn yourself because the soup is very hot. But it's, uh, I love those, the dumplings, the noodles, these are my favorite things. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at US Asia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.